Good morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord, our God, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We bless you because you are the rock of our salvation. You are solid and sure and steadfast. We pray for the church, for this church, founded on the rock of Christ. Grant that this congregation may be firmly established in Christ, built up in Christ, performing the work of Christ, filled with the love of Christ. And we pray for our sister churches in the CREC, here and abroad, that we may remain focused on the work of your kingdom and be preserved in health and peace. And also for all faithful churches throughout the city, state, nation, and world, that an army of your people would grow in love for you and one another, and that we might show the world the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the families of your people who labor to raise children for your glory, prosper their work of education and training for your service and glory. Father, we pray for our country, which has forsaken your law and lost its way. In your just judgment, remember mercy. Sustain your people. Purify your church. Grant us courage, grace, and wisdom that we might be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. May we as a people rediscover the beauty of holiness. We pray for our institutions, our legislatures and courts, our businesses and industries, and our schools, that we might discover the true light of freedom that comes by knowing the truth. Father, we pray that we might fulfill our respective vocations and callings, that we might accomplish the work you've given us to do. We pray for those who have no work, for those who work but have little return, for those who have menial work, dangerous work, or burdensome work. Teach us contentment. Fill us with thanksgiving and complete and complete your work in us, for we rejoice in the service which you have called us to perform. Make our homes places of loving communion and make them places of service for your kingdom. May we each represent you well as we let our light shine and be seen. Give parents the wisdom and resolve to train their children by word and example to keep the way of the Lord. May their hearts be toward their children and may the hearts of children be toward their parents. Advance your kingdom through each of these little outposts of your kingdom. Help us now as we sit under your loving law, your true, powerful, infallible, and authoritative word. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. Hear now the word of the living God. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, 
that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. In this series of sermons, we have been attempting to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And in answering that question, it will lead us to the next question, which is, how, if possible, can it be fixed? And that brings us to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that brings us some good news. So we're dealing with core issues, the basics of the Christian faith. If the Bible is true then the gospel is everything. If the Bible is not God's word, if it's not true, then of course the gospel is nothing. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have just perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, We are, of all men, most pitiable. But, if Christ did rise from the dead, then we must conclude that those who reject God's word, those who reject the gospel, then they are, of of all men, most pitiable. By way of review, we've looked at the fact that the Bible is a big book, a book, a book of many stories, and yet all of those stories point to the one master story about Jesus Christ. And so that story is about four basic things. It tells us about God, about ourselves, about sin, and about redemption. Those are how how each of the stories uh, ultimately point to Jesus Christ and our redemption. And so at the center of the story is Christ. All things were not only created by him, but they were created for him. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And so we pointed out that at the very beginning, once upon a time, the house was in order. God created all things, and he looked at it and called it good. God and man walked in paradise together. Everything was beautiful. If this were the end of our story, we'd simply say, and they lived happily ever after. But then sin comes along, disobedience, not doing what God says to do or doing what God said not to do. This blissful covenant relationship between man and God and between men and other men or men and women and the whole creation was conditioned upon two basic things, love and faith. Adam was created after God's image and he was to reflect the community or the communion of the Trinity. This fellowship, this love, a mutual love for one another. But when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, and indeed their relationship to the whole creation was ripped apart. It was destroyed by sin. Sin wrecked the beautiful house. Paradise was lost. They forfeited everything. That's what death does. 
They were cut off from the covenant or the relationship. He, and man then loses himself in a universe that becomes incomprehensible. He's alienated from God. He's alienated from other men. And he is even alienated from the creation itself. And as a result, this former relationship of love and uh, and communion is now changed into a relationship of enmity or hostility. Man's love and faith resulted in obedience, which that led to blessing. And now, instead, unbelief has led to disobedience, which always produces the opposite. We pointed out four stories very early in the book of Genesis that illustrate the widening destructive force of sin on man's relationships and even on the world. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They no longer walked with God, but rather hid from God, and and God brought judgment upon them. There 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 were consequences to this sin and separation from God, and that meant moving out. Then we read about Cain and Abel, these two brothers who end up in conflict, and of course Cain kills his brother Abel. After that, we saw the destruction of the world. God looks at the world very soon, uh, uh, very early in the book of Genesis, and he says that he only saw evil continually in the hearts of men. And so he brings judgment, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he preserves one family, and uh, his grace begins to, to show his plan of salvation. And then we looked at the Tower of Babel. Uh, where men very quickly after the flood began to assemble and try to do their own thing and, and to reject God and make a name for themselves. And so God decides to bring further judgment and divides the earth physically, geographically, but also by divided by confusing languages, which made communion and communication uh, even more difficult. And that, again, was the judgment of sin. Today, I want to talk about God putting the house back in order, paradise restored, or covenant redemption. And so God promises now that he is going to move to do something to address this problem. Man made a big mess of things, and we pointed out that that is what's wrong with the world. He failed to follow God's law, his plan, his covenant. In other words, he disregarded what God had to say. He sinned. All he had to do was love his creator, believe God's word, and then manifest that love by obedience. But he traded love, faith, and obedience for hatred, unbelief, and disobedience. And in so doing, he traded paradise for a curse, for a wasteland. And that's what's wrong with the world. From time to time, excuse me, from the time of the fall, God, being a gracious God who is full of mercy, promised redemption. This was an extension of his covenant of grace that that was with man in the first place. Uh, He condescended even further than before. He reached down to the rebel sinner to lift him up. Now, it's important to understand that when man, man fell, he fell all the way. He didn't just bump his head. He didn't just scrape his knee. The Bible says that we became dead in our trespasses and sins. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, we read, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely a righteous man will will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God, uh, after, after he's described that we're dead in trespasses and sins, it says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Man had totally ruined himself. He not only was under God's wrath and curse, but the fall had disabled him so that there was no way he could help himself. Again, Romans 8, 6-8, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, is hostile towards God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Therefore, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so man had cut himself off from the very source of life, which is that uh, binding covenant relationship with God. And when we talk about covenant, we're simply saying that God himself, as the creator, enters into a relationship with man, And he sets the terms of that relationship. He says, here's how you're to relate to me. Here are the things, here are your duties. Here's what I'm calling you to do so that we can be in fellowship and and communion with one another. Those are the rules. That's how the house, how how the world was to operate and to operate blissfully and happily until sin disrupts that, until we become lawbreakers. And so if the covenant relationship, which has now been broken because of sin, was to be restored, if the house was to be put back in order and paradise restored, God would have to do it. And the good news is, he did. In Genesis 17, 1 through 2, when Abraham, we read, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared, excuse me, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. It's God's initiative that reestablishes his good relationship with man. The story of Abram, and later his name will be changed to Abraham. Uh, Abram is just uh, means exalted father, and his name will be changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Because God is now very early in the book of Genesis, not that many, not, not too distant from the fall. Uh, we, we, we read about Abraham. We're a couple of thousand years after the creation, and now God is working in uh, this man, Abraham. The relationship that was severed by man is now going to be, begin to be restored by God. Now, God had been doing other things. We know that, for example, Abel made sacrifices. There were Clearly, people worshiping the true God, but something big, some big, a big change is now about to take place with Abraham. In Genesis 17, 7, it says, God says, and I will establish my covenant. When you hear covenant, just think of my relationship. 
between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your descendants after you. And so God, we, we learn from this, God is a personal God. He's not just off out there somewhere. He's not the man upstairs. But God is a personal God. He's Abraham's God. And he said to him, I'll be your God. Abraham was an individual sinner called out from the world to be separate. In Genesis 15, 15, we read, And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Redemption requires the mighty work of God. We cannot save ourselves. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we read some comments on this, verses 7 through 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous, speaking to God. Notice that Abraham's heart, we read in this text, was full of faith. He believed God. God didn't just call, though, the individual Abraham. In calling Abraham, God also laid claim to everything that belonged to Abraham, everything that was an extension of Abraham, his entire household, his wife, his children, his servants, his land, his animals, everything that Abraham had oversight over now belonged to God. And now they entered into this new relationship with God. And this would especially be seen in family relationships. And so God promises not only to be Abraham's God, but to be a God to his children and to his children's children for a thousand generations. And so as Abraham's descendants had been cursed, in, excuse me, as Adam's descendants had been cursed in him, so now Abraham's children would be blessed in him. So we read in Genesis 12, 7 through 9, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to a mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with, uh, with Bethel on the west, uh, uh, west and, I, uh, and on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. So the children of God's people have always then been central to his big plan of redemption. So he's going to save Abraham, but also Abraham's family. God loved Abraham, and God loved the people that Abraham loved. Now, I didn't stop there. This covenant of grace didn't stop with the individual Abraham, and it didn't even stop with his family the covenant blessing would extend far beyond and, in fact, include the whole world. Redemption reaches as far as the curse. Genesis 17, 4 through 6, And as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Remember, father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly faithful, I was fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. 
Later, God would tell Moses in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. In fact, you shall be a holy nation. And so God begins with one man, one family, and then one nation. And from there, this kingdom of priests, this separate nation, would bring forth a king, an ultimate king, that would be a blessing to the whole world. And that king is going to be Jesus Christ. God would give them the Ark of the Covenant, which would contain his laws to govern his people because he loves them. Remember, his law is given to to give them the, the instruction books, book, if you will, to life of how to relate to God and how to relate and love their neighbor. And so we read in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 9, Therefore be careful to observe them, that is God's words, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all the law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. So God will then go on to give them the tabernacle and the priesthood and the animal sacrifices all of, and the feast. All, of, all were designed to instruct them in redemption and point to Christ. Remember from the beginning, God's law is an expression of his love for us. When we abandoned his law of love, we went wrong and the world went wrong. And now in this new covenant relationship with God, which is putting the house back in order, his new people now love God, and now they desire to obey God. They believe him. King David would very soon write, Oh, how I love your law. And and the apostle Paul would make it clear in Galatians 3.24 that the law, primarily referring, referring to all these sacrificial laws, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and so forth, that all of these were tutors, instructors to bring us to Christ that we might be justified or made right by faith. So, this is the right order of things. Just for a quick review here, God loved us and gave us his perfect law so that we might be blessed. We turned from him and from his law because we wanted to be our own God. We wanted to make our own rules And that is what's wrong with us, and that's what's wrong with the world. God moved to rescue us and this broken world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, we're told in 1 John 4.19 that we love him because he first loved us. And in John 14.15, Since we have been made into new creations, we now love him. And as Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The grace of God, which rescues us from sin, and sin, remember, is just the breaking of his law, causes us, his rescue causes us in gratitude to love God and to believe God, which leads to our new obedience 
which then begins uh, the result of fixing us and our families and our cities and our nations and indeed the world. 1 John 5, 1 through 3 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So God's promise to Abraham included the promise that his seed or his descendant, his seed would bless the nations. And then we read uh, a New Testament inspired, Holy Spirit inspired commentary in Galatians 3.16. And it says this, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. And so do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 18:19? We read it at the beginning. Well, it shows up again on the day of Pentecost in Peter's sermon to all those who had assembled to celebrate Passover. And Passover was a holiday that celebrated God's deliverance of his people from the Egyptians out of slavery. And uh, the Passover lamb, which... Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. And so we read in Acts 2, 37-39, on that day when Peter is preaching to thousands who had gathered there in Jerusalem, it says, now when they heard this, this is toward the end of his sermon, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, turn around, stop, go a new direction. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the taking away of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then here he actually cites this Abrahamic promise from Genesis chapter 18. For the promise, which promise? That Abrahamic promise. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far far off as many as the Lord our God will call. And so, let's look at this from one other angle here, just to bring it all together. In Abraham, we see the restoration of love, faith, and then that produces the evidence or the fruit of obedience. He believed God. And so, again, we go to the Scriptures to see where what God says about this. In Hebrews chapter 11, Verses 8 through 12, by faith Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to the place with uh, which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as, a, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him, that is God, faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand 
which is by the seashore. We see in the story of Abraham, justification by faith, being made right with God by simply believing God, loving God, believing God. And so Romans chapter 4, verse 11 says, And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, the covenant sign. Uh, Think of a wedding ring as a covenant sign in in a marriage covenant. Uh, He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. In other words, he believed first that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So we have justification, being made right with God by believing God again, by coming back into that relationship. Then inevitably our faith is tested. Peter describes how God works in his people in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7, You who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, or at at the end, at the end of the story. Um, So kept by the power of God, and yet our faith is tested to prove its genuineness, to demonstrate its genuineness. And obedience, the test of love and faith, we see this in the story of Abraham. This is a little longer passage, but I really want to kind of wrap up with this because it's such an unusual story, a powerful story, about how Abraham, after he had received this promise, God's going to test him, which is not, of course, God's uh, omniscient. God knows Abraham. But God, I think, is demonstrating not only to Abraham uh, what Abraham needs to understand about faith and trusting God, but even to us by recording it in Scripture. So we read, again, in the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 14. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. That's a great, that should be our response. When God speaks, when God's word says something, uh, we, we ought to be all ears. And then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a bird offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife and a knife, and the two men of them, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And of course, this is a great story, a picture of God, the Heavenly Father, and Christ, His Son, being sacrificed. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar altar there and placed the wood in order 
And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Which is another way of saying, now I know that you love God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behold, uh, there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So by faith, Hebrews eleven seventeen and 19, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So God, Abraham remembered God's first promise, that through his seed he was going to become a multitude of nations and it was going to be a blessing to the world. So Abraham believed that first promise. So now when God says, sacrifice your son, Abraham didn't forget the first promise. He kept that and he did what God said to do. He trusted God. So his faith is being tested here and he continued to believe God. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says in James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Remember, Adam walked with God in the garden. Now Abraham walks with God. They're friends. They're back into that relationship. So what about me and you and the world that's gone wrong? You see, it all starts when we stop, stopped loving and believing God. Like the three-year-old who wants to be in charge, this isn't going to end well. This is a messed up place. Yes, there are still some remnants of glory in the creation and even in us. We're made in the image of God even though we're broken. That's the bad news. The good news is that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for a broken world. It's your only hope. It's my only hope. He can set us right and He can set the world right. He can recreate you in the image of His Son. Let's pray. Lord, it is obvious that the world has gone wrong, and it's also obvious that each of us has gone wrong. Father of mercy, we give you thanks. Indeed, we worship you for your great salvation, for we could never save ourselves. Your gracious condescension found us when we were without Christ and without hope in the world. And so, we now love you because you first loved us. You reconciled us to yourself through Jesus Christ. You have begun a work in us 
to conform us to his image, a work that you will complete. For we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are no longer without hope, and so we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.